0: passion for God, and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Great to have you here at Crosswinds, and today we are going to be talking about uh, somebody who is the most important person in the history of the world. You may have heard of him. Uh, His name is Jesus. Right, he actually is the most important person in the history of the world. Uh, Jesus, it actually comes from the Hebrew, uh, Joshua, which means God saves. We often call him Jesus Christ. Christ also comes from the Hebrew, it means God's anointed, it means God's chosen one. So it's not like Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. It is Jesus who is the Christ, God's anointed and chosen one. And without doubt, he is the most important person in the history of the world. In fact, he lived uh, just 2,000 years ago. He spent the first 30 years of his life working as a blue-collar worker, as a carpenter, working for his father. He never traveled too far, didn't do too much that way. Uh, and contrary to some really bad books, he didn't marry and have children that are now in Europe, just so you know. Um, He had little money, he never wrote anything special down, but he is still the most significant person in history, because today we divide history in half based on his birth, B.C., before Christ, A.D., from the year of our Lord. In fact, our holidays are really based around him, aren't they? Uh, Christmas and Easter. In fact, today, I, would, I think it's safe to say there are more books written about him. There are more um, songs sung to him. There are more paintings painted for him than anyone else in the history of the world. Who is this Jesus? In fact, Jesus said to his disciples, remember, the most important question you can answer is, who do you say I am? At one point, not didn't look like much of anything, but today, the most significant person in the history of the world. Now, there's a variety of answers running around out there about who people think that Jesus is. Let me give you some examples. Uh, if you were to ask a Jehovah's Witness, Jehovah's Witnesses will say, Well, Jesus is just the first created being in the universe. He's actually Michael, the archangel. If you were to ask a Mormon, he would s- They would say that Jesus is just the polygamist half-brother of Lucifer. And if you're really good, you can become like him one day. And you can um, have your own planet and populate it with spirit babies from your wife. That's what they say. Christian science, by the way, which is a contradiction in terms, because they are neither Christian nor scientific, um, they will say clearly that Jesus isn't God, Islam. Islam will say that Jesus is just a prophet, but not as good as their prophet, Muhammad. Hindus will say that Jesus is just an enlightened man, one of many enlightened men to walk the earth. But who is Jesus? Or as Jesus said, the most important question that each one of us has to answer is, who do you say that I am? And today we're going to get an answer about who Jesus is. But we're not going to do it by talking to other people and what they think about Jesus. We're going to put our finger in the Bible and see what the Bible says about Jesus and who he actually is. As Nick mentioned, we have been studying our way through the book of Colossians. The first week in the book of Colossians, we just looked a little bit of the background of the book and the letter to Colossae. And we learned that these uh, young Christians in this small church were under a lot of cultural pressure to stop making a big deal of Jesus Christ. Jesus, is, they said, is not that big. He's just sort of a, a sub-deity, maybe a peewee league deity out there. And Jesus is um, certainly not all we need to know God. That's what they were struggling with. The second week of the series, which is what we looked at last week, we learned um, a little bit about saving faith and what is true saving faith, because Paul thanks these Colossians for their genuine saving faith. We learned how you recognize it. We learned how genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ spreads. We learned how genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ grows. And lastly, we learned what genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ has done for us. We learned that saving faith in Jesus Christ has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we have heaven and we have the new creation. All is a gift. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we have been transferred from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his Son. We no longer have to sin. Jesus breaks the power of sin from our life. And because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we're completely forgiven of our sin. God sees us as completely new, clean, and pure. Now, today, as we continue in the text, what Paul is going to do is, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about who this Jesus is, who has broken the power of sin and saved your life. Now, I have to tell you, this is, without doubt, the richest, most detailed and vivid passage in the entire scriptures on the identity of Jesus Christ. You need to be prepared to understand that. And this study, is, again, as we look through it, is going to fall under three headings. First thing we're going to see is who Jesus is as the creator of all things. Then we're going to see Jesus as the reconciler of all things. And then we're going to bring it home. How does Jesus relate to me? So let's jump in. Jesus is the creator of all things, is what Paul begins by saying. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. The first thing we see is this that Paul says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. No one has seen him or can see him, but Jesus makes God visible to us. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, the Greek word image here is the Greek word icon. And an icon is sort of a little picture that gives you a visual representation of something. You guys have computers, you have computer icons, a little visual picture representing the program behind it. But an icon doesn't have to be a little pixelated image. An icon can be a very detailed image. For instance, if you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and what you see staring you back in the face is a very detailed icon, a very detailed image that perfectly reflects each one of us as we are. And unfortunately, we may not like what we see. Amen? But that's truly what an icon is. Now what this is saying is Jesus is that perfect picture representation of God the Father. Like a mirror showing, him, showing us what God is like. For instance, it says in John 14.9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Or John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Now, Jesus is not just a picture of God the Father. What we learn throughout the scriptures is Jesus and God are God the Father are both God, yet the Bible says we have one God. How does that work? What it's saying is God the Father and God the Son are in such tight lock step with one another. That to see the Son is to see the Father. They are that close and identical to one another. So Jesus is completely identical with the Father in that way. But what it means to say that Jesus is the image of God, it means more than just you can now see God in the flesh. It means more than visual things. It actually goes to the level of character itself. For instance, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, talking about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. If you want to see what God the Father would do in a situation, you look at Jesus Christ. Because how Jesus Christ responds in a situation is exactly how God the Father will respond in a situation. Because Jesus doesn't just visually show us God, but he shows us God in his character, in his likeness. And it gets to a really cool level here. It's much more than visual and in character. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27... It says that man was created in the image of God. We were designed to reflect God. And many things about us today still do reflect God. We have an emotion. We have will. God has emotions. God has will. But we all know what has happened. Uh, Adam sinned and we sinned, so the image of God is very distorted in us. It's twisted, it's warped. We will lie, we will cheat, we will steal, we will cuss, which is not a good representation of God. Now, here's where it gets interesting Jesus is man created, or God, or man created in the image of God without sin. In Jesus, we see what we were originally created to be. We see man without sin. This is why Jesus is called the second Adam. The first Adam sinned, and the image of God was distorted. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, didn't sin. So the image of God is not distorted in him. We see the perfect realization of humanity in Jesus. Now, here is the cool part. God's plan is to restore us to the image we originally had, a perfect image of God without the distortion of sin. And who's he going to do it all through? Jesus Christ. Look at this. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, the perfect imaging of God imaging man, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So Jesus is, number one, the image of the invisible God. The next thing we see, Paul says, is this. Jesus is also the firstborn of all creation. Now, there's a lot of room for misunderstanding here. In fact, the the Jehovah's Witnesses completely misunderstand this verse. If you've dealt with them before, they always bring this up. They say here, they say, Jesus is the firstborn of creation. They they see that means that Jesus cannot be God because he is the first created being in creation. Now, typically, that's the way we think of things. Uh, Firstborn typically refers to first created for us. But that's not necessarily always the way the Bible refers to things. What you need to understand is in the Bible, firstborn refers uh, to a rank. Not necessarily the person who is firstborn, but it's a title of rank. It's a title of honor. If you have been around when we studied the Old Testament, you know that the firstborn son in a family was the highest in rank and order in the family. In fact, when the father died, who took on leadership in the family? The firstborn son, because he was highest in rank and order. Who had double the inheritance in the family when the father died? The firstborn son. But this is where it gets interesting the firstborn son could lose his rank and title of being the firstborn. In fact, somebody else could be given that rank and title. So firstborn doesn't just necessarily mean the one who is born first. It can also mean the one who is the highest in rank in creation, or highest in rank in order here. Now this is where it gets really interesting. This is the way it's talking about Jesus when it says he is the firstborn of creation. He is the highest in rank, the highest being in creation. In fact, let me show you how this word firstborn is used in Scripture in Psalm 89, verse 27. Speaking about Jesus, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So Jesus is the one who is the one who has the highest rank, the highest level of standing in this created order. Now, why do we say that? Why does Paul say that? Here's why. Because by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. This is the way, if you go back to Genesis, uh, God speaks and things came into existence. God said, let there be light, and light came into existence. And you start to study this. You get to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John goes on to say that Jesus was the one who carried out God the Father's creative orders in Genesis. Hebrews chapter 1. It's very clear that Jesus is the one who created everything on this earth because he is the word of his Father that carries out what his Father once done. So Jesus is the one who created everything. In fact, there are 800,000 insects on this planet, different varieties of them. And you know what? Jesus made every one. And someday I'm going to ask him why he made the mosquito. Honestly, But Jesus made every different tree. He made every different animal, every different fish, every different bird, every different grain in the field. Jesus made every cell in your body. He is the one who designed DNA. Jesus made everything on this planet. But he didn't just make everything... On this planet, he made everything in the entire universe. This Earth, we think, is big and and complex, but the universe is much more complex and larger than this Earth. For instance, um, the Sun. Look at the Sun, it's 864,000 miles in diameter across. It's a hundred times larger than the earth in diameter. They tell us that you can fit 1.3 million earths inside of our sun. That's big. Who made the sun? Jesus. Jesus is a big time guy. He made the sun. And Jesus made every single planet Every planet that is orbiting our sun. Not only are there planets that are out there, but there's stars, and Jesus made every star. And if you start to think about this, this really gets mind-boggling. For instance, stars may look small from our perspective, but actually they're rather quite large. There's one star out there called Betelgeuse, if I pronounced it right, and it has a diameter of a hundred million miles. To give you an idea of how big that is, that star is as large as, and even larger than the size of the Earth's orbit around the sun. And who made it? Jesus. And that was just one star. Lights, it travels at 186,000 miles per second. And if I have this right, I believe that it takes light 8.5 seconds to travel from the sun to the earth because we're that far away. But light from the sun has to continue to travel for four years at 186,000 miles per second, four years to reach the nearest star to us. A star known as Alpha Centauri, who is 24 trillion miles away. And that's just one star. And the, they tell us that in our galaxy known as the Milky Way, there are billions of stars. Every single one of them created by Jesus. And the Milky Way is only one galaxy. They say there's billions of other galaxies out there. Every single one. Created by Jesus. And one of the things I read this week, I, I just help put this in perspective. Uh, one person said that the number of stars in the universe is roughly the equivalent of the number of grains of sand on planet Earth. And who made every single one of them? Jesus Christ. The one who had died on a Roman cross, and the one who rose from the tomb. In case you doubt that he made the universe, let me just turn you to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Next point. Jesus created the visible and the invisible world. I began to try and stretch our minds about how big this visible world is. And we realized that we don't really know too much about it because it is so big, so vast, we can't even get our minds around it. But there is an equally uh, complex and unexplored area that is in our (laughs) sort of smaller world. Get out a microscope and you see cells. You go a little further and, and you can see DNA. You go a little further and you can see molecules. And you go even further and there's a, there's a subatomic world out there, vast and unexplored. And scientists say the subatomic world is on the same kind of scope and scale as the uh, terrestrial world of the stars. This has all been created by Jesus. And there's another world out there, which is called the invisible world, that no one has been able to see with any kind of a microscope or a telescope. It's called the world of angels, the world of demons, that whole world. Now, I'm not going to give the backup for this, but I'm just going to mention, when we studied the book of Daniel, one of the things we learned is the scriptures hint at the fact that the unseen, invisible world of angels and demons is even vaster than our seen visual world. And who created all of it? Jesus Christ. Paul writes, whether they are thrones or rulers or dominions or authority, Jesus is above all these things. what are those titles? We've covered this in, in, in history a few years ago, but if you were to look at intertestamental Jewish literature, what they believed is that the angelic world would be ordered, just like our physical world is ordered. We have governors, you know, and we have mayors, and we have presidents, right? There's an ordering. Now, they use different titles for the orders in the angelic world, and they go in this order. Thrones, rulers, dominions, or authorities. Dominions and authorities are the two highest-ranking orders of angels that the Jews could ever conceive of. And what do we find? That Jesus isn't a high-ranking angel, but Jesus is the one who created all the angels. Next, all things were not just created by Jesus, but they will come back to Jesus. Jesus. As all things began by Jesus, is what we've learned, all things will end with Jesus. As Jesus says in the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. Exactly. Now, right now, what we don't see is everything submitting to Jesus Christ. We see things in rebellion to Jesus Christ. But the scriptures are very clear that it will not always be that way. That Jesus will one day assert his authority. And he will reestablish himself as the rightful ruler over everything. It says this in Philippians chapter 2, 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or in Romans 11.36, it says, for from him, that's creation, and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. The point of the scripture is that everyone will bow the knee to Jesus because he is the one who created all things, whether they do it willingly and joyfully or unwillingly while in torment. They will do this because Jesus created all things and he is the rightful ruler of all things. Now, let me pause and give you an interesting thought on this. Remember when the book of Colossians is being written around 60 A.D. Jesus dies roughly 30 A.D. Many times you uh, read some scholars who are educated beyond their intelligence, and they will say that the idea that Jesus is God actually wasn't part of the original Christian faith. It only came hundreds of years later, and it was thrown in. Did you read the Bible? Paul is writing this, Less than 30 years after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. And he's clearly saying that Jesus is God over everything. The next thing we learn is this. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, I told you earlier that Jehovah's Witnesses miss this, because they take the word firstborn to mean firstborn first created. When actually firstborn in this context means highest of rank and honor. And we very clearly know that he is not the first created being because it says right here Jesus existed before all things were created. So didn't Jesus didn't just exist before all things were created but it also says here that Jesus is the one who holds the entire universe Together, Jesus is the one who keeps this world operating day to day, each moment. Around the time of the founding of our country, there was a popular belief out there, some of you have probably heard of, called deism. Deism said that what God did is he created the world, He set it in motion, and then he stepped away, and he's watching how it'll unfold. And God is not involved in everyday life. The way they analogized it was, it's like spinning a top. You know, you spin a top, you get it in motion, and you sit back, and you watch where it goes and what it's going to bounce off of, and you have no idea what's going to happen. That's the way they thought about things. But this verse right here very clearly says that deism is not true. Because Jesus Christ is the one who holds the world together each and every day. Now, sometimes we think of it this way. Um, We see tension, say, between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. And we wonder, like, you know, who's going to flinch and press the button first, Is life spinning out of control and is it held by these two men in their hands? Let me show you what the scripture says about who really holds the future of the world in their hands. It says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Trump and Kim Jong-un cannot do anything apart from what, God says he will allow to take place. Because he's the one who sustains us day to day. The reason you just took another breath was because of a gift of Jesus. The reason you didn't die last night of a heart attack was a gift of Jesus. Because he's the one who sustains us every day. The reason that you avoided that head-on collision in traffic It's not by chance. It was a gift of Jesus who had his hand actually involved in your life day to day. Jesus is the one who holds everything together in our world. So when life starts falling apart when it comes to our health, when life starts falling apart when it comes to our marriage, when life is falling apart when it comes to our schoolwork, when life is falling apart in general, who should we turn to to find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need? Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who holds everything together. Right? He's the one that can hold our life together. Now, What we need to understand is what a big deal it is that we have Jesus Christ. Remember the problem in Colossae? People were saying to these Colossian Christians, well, you have Jesus, but he's not that big of a deal. He's sort of that JV league deity out there. You need something more. Paul's like, trust me, he's not JV. Jesus is like the top firstborn, the highest rank in creation. And if you have him, you have more than you could ever imagine. And I think sometimes one of the things we need to do is we need to rethink our problems in life based on who we have in Jesus. Let me give you an example. Say, for instance, you've really worked hard in high school to be varsity in your sport. And it comes time, you do your best, and you don't make varsity lineup. Now, am I, am I sad about that? Of course. You've worked hard. That's what you want to do. I feel terrible about that. But we go home and we're just heartbroken over it and we can't seem to move beyond that. And then somebody comes up to you and says, well, you know what? It's okay. It's all going to work out. You have Jesus. And you think that's a trite answer. But it's really not that trite after all, is it? You may not have been able to get your varsity lineup, but the one who created this entire planet, the one who created the sun, who spun all of the stars, the billions and billions of stars into the skies, died for you on the cross to take away this penalty of sin that you fully deserved. And that same Jesus, he drew you to himself. He saved you. And your new identity in him is to be the most blessed being in the entire vast, unfathomable universe. That's who we are. Sometimes it's like we're crying over the fact we lost a penny in the Walmart parking lot. when we're holding in our hand the $100 million winning lottery ticket. We have Jesus. Doesn't that put things in perspective? Now, we've seen that Jesus is number one in this creation because he created everything. He sustains everything. You can't get any higher than Jesus. But the other thing Paul says is this. Jesus is the one who will reconcile all things He says in verses 18 through 20, And he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now this is interesting. Just a verse ago, Paul was talking about Jesus being the head of the universe. and All of a sudden, he's talking about Jesus being head of the church. I thought he would talk about something more significant. I mean, church? That's something that we see as very optional. You know, if I'm around on the weekend, maybe I'll be there. You know, it's, just, it's sort of an optional thing to be involved. But Jesus sees the church as an incredibly big deal. Because the only reason the church exists is because he died to redeem us, to bring the church into existence. And he is the head of the church. Now, when he says head, we might think that sounds like a a CEO of the corporation church. And Jesus is very distant and disconnected from us because he's the CEO in the corporation. But that's not the way this reads in the original language. The idea of head here means inseparably and organically connected. The idea is just as our head controls our hands, so our left hand and right hand work together in harmony, so Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, indwells us, guides us, and works together through us. The reason that we can run, By putting a left foot and right foot in front of the others because the head guides and directs the feet, right? And the reason that the church is able to be productive and do things for Christ is because Jesus, the head, guides and directs us. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, what uh, Paul says is when there is disunity in the church, you know where disunity in the church comes from? It's because people are beginning to disconnect from what? The head, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ directs us so we can work together in unity. The other thing he says here is that Jesus Christ is the beginning. Now, this is interesting. We saw that Jesus Christ was involved in the original creation in the Genesis account, but now he's talking about the resurrection. And what he is saying is that the, because of the death on the cross and because of his empty tomb, there is literally a new creation that has taken place through Jesus Christ. A new Genesis moment. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has inaugurated a new created world order where Satan, sin, and death no longer reign, And Jesus Christ is the firstborn of this creation. That in everything, Jesus Christ, he says, would be preeminent. That means Jesus Christ deserves to be and must be number one. Jesus Christ is number one in this current creation because he made everything and sustains everything. In this new created order, where Jesus Christ is the first to rise from the dead, and we have Jesus' spirit inside of us, and we will also rise from the dead. Jesus Christ is also number one there, and Jesus Christ deserves to be number one in our life, in our family, in our marriage, in our job, in our television watching, in our music, in our internet, in everything we do, Jesus Christ deserves to be first. And he says what Jesus Christ is doing with this new resurrection is he is reconciling all things to himself. Genesis, we have the original creation. Through the cross and the tomb, we have the new creation. And it doesn't just have implications for us, but Christ's cross and tomb have implication for the entire Universe. You see, when sin entered this world, sin didn't just affect our hearts and our minds. Sin infected the creation order itself. Romans 8.21 says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The reason we have natural disasters like Hurricane Harvey or Hurricane Irma the reason that people die, the reason people get old and we have hospitals is all because of sin. But Jesus' resurrection is not just remaking our heart, not just remaking our mind, but Jesus Christ's resurrection will end up in the recreation of the entire vast universe stripped free of sin. 2 Peter says this, But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, incidentally, we've studied this before that the word new here is special. It's not new and completely different, it's renewed and vastly improved. That Jesus Christ is going to take this same created order and through the power that happened at his resurrection. He will completely renew it. Now, let me just pause here and just address one thing that can be a sticking point. Sometimes we look at this and we say, well, what about Satan? What about the demons? What about those who have died apart from Christ? Is God gonna somehow, through Jesus, reconcile them back to him too? Does this mean that universalism is true and Rob Bell's right, and everybody wins in the end? No, it, it doesn't. When he talks about reconciling all things back to God, he's reconciling back to God all the things it is possible to reconcile back to God. For instance, the Scriptures are very clear that Satan and his demons will not be reconciled back to God. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 talks about those, some will die apart from Christ and they have an eternal punishment. It says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So it is clear that Satan and his demons will not be reconciled back to God. Those who die apart from Christ will not be reconciled back to God. But everything that is reconcilable in this vast universe will be through one new grand act of creation. Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. Now, let's look at this last point. Jesus and me. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He says, you were alienated. You were completely far from God. You were hostile in your mind to God. By the way, the the problem with people is not that they don't know God, The problem, according to the Bible, is that we are hostile to God. We hate God. Not only do we hate God, but we do evil deeds against God. That's what the Scriptures say. That's who we were. But what did God do? He reconciled us through Jesus Christ. We didn't take the initiative to solve our problem with God. God took the initiative to solve our problem with Him. By sending his son Jesus Christ to die in our place. And what is this for? To present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Someday, every single one of us will stand before God and we'll have to give an account for our lives. The scriptures are clear that everything we do and say and think are being recorded, not on our cell phone but by God. And we will have to give an account for that. But here is the cool part. What God has done for us in Jesus Christ is to reconcile us back to God, completely pay for our sin. So in the day we stand before Him, because of Jesus Christ and our simple faith in trust in Him, we are completely free. Satan the great accuser who always whispers in our ear has to be completely silent on that day because we are completely forgiven and made new by Jesus Christ. So the first thing I have to say is if you have not trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, I beg you not to stand before God on that final day of judgment on your own merits flee from your sin, run to Jesus Christ and be born again and let him reconcile you to God. And for the rest of us, this is what the scriptures say. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Our only hope on the day of judgment, to be able to stand before God, holy and blameless in his sight, is Jesus Christ. As you go through life, don't let anything shift you away from him. Luke chapter 8 talks about the parable of the sower. And how the sower sowed the seed and fell on different soils. And one of the soils that the seed fell on was a seed that had thorns. The seed grew up, but it was choked out. And Jesus says, those thorns represent the cares, the pleasures, and the worries of everyday life. Choke out the word of God in people's lives. My friends, we have a busy life. There's a lot of things going on the cares the players the cares and the worries of life can easily get us shifted away from Jesus Christ so we're worried about thinking about and living for everything but him my friends don't let that happen to you Jesus Christ he's number 1 in this creation because he created everything and he sustains everything Jesus Christ is number 1 in the reconciliation of all things Because the new creation took place through his um, resurrection from the dead. And it'll ultimately impact the entire universe. And Jesus Christ deserves to be in what place in our heart, mind, and lives? Number one. Don't let anything shift him away from that position that he so rightfully deserves. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much for what you have done. We just want to confess that we've often had too small a picture of you. We've forgotten that you're the one that created the universe. We've forgotten that you're the one who is redeeming us and redeeming the entire universe, reconciling you to God. Jesus, in the busyness of life, we confess that we often lose sight of you. And this morning, we just want to re-anchor ourselves in you knowing that it's because of you, Jesus Christ, that we have every good thing. And all God's people said, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.